0: Welcome to the Media Maven's podcast brought to you by the Evergreen Network. The Media Maven's podcast is where you'll hear the latest and greatest trends, topics, and tribulations with industry leaders. And here is your host of the Media Maven's podcast. She is the original Media Maven, Sarah Miller.
1: This is Sarah Miller, CEO of Access Entertainment, and you're a host for Media Maven's podcast. And I'm here today with my co-host,
0: Joe Pirates. What's going on, Joe Pirates? I am living long and prosper here in Tucson right now.
1: (laughs) You're happy after yesterday's elections. Not the
0: elections, but the
1: uh, the inauguration. Sorry, the inauguration. See, it shows how little I pay attention to politics because I'm too busy with my head up in the clouds, which is why I'm excited. Uh, See, see, with our guest is here with us. Christopher Mick, he works with NASA. He's a space ambassador, educator on all things in the solar system. Chris, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, hey, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: I had two witty little comments coming to this podcast and none of you guys really laughed. So maybe I'm not as funny as I thought I was. (laughs) But you know what? Alien intelligence thinks I'm funny. Oh my God, Chris. So excited. I don't even know where to start with you because I always geek out on space stuff and Joe knows that. Joe's kind of in a Star Trek
0: mode. That's just sci-fi that's, space geek.
2: Sci-fi. Uh, hey, that's that's good too. Yeah,
0: started ever since I was what five years old watching it. So.
2: <laughs> well, and one of my daughter, my daughter's in college now, but one of her all-time favorite uh, memories is uh, she wanted to meet William Shatner, and we did it at a convention. She got oh, a photo yeah. with him and got to hug him. Oh, and, really? Uh, that, that's yeah. I set it up because you know, she was so shy and she was just crazy about William Shatner and Captain Kirk and classic Star Trek. And so they had the whole assembly line, you know, where you go through, where you stand on the X, you get the photo, he's sitting on a bar stool and the, all the attendees are saying, you know, you can't, you won't autograph anything. You can't talk to him. You can't touch him. Just stand on your mark. We'll do the photo next. And so she was shy and wanted me to go with her for the photo. And so I got in front of her. And so as we're going, I'm passing him to stand on my X and I just leaned down toward him. I'm like, she wants to hug you so much, but she's painfully shy. And I stand on my X and I'm figuring that's it. I did what I could. And then the photographer's coming in and then William Shatner and you can, you can hear the voice in your own head, but he throws up his arms and he says, hold it, hold it. And he looks over at Tyler and he's just like, do it. And she gives him a big bear hug. Aww. And it's like the photo. And then all the, all the staff is like, you are so lucky. He never does that. You're not <laughs> supposed to. Oh.
1: He's a captain. You never mess yep. with the captain.
0: captain. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, met, I met Shatner back in 72 at a, a all, all things, an auto show.
2: Okay. Yeah.
0: so
1: Flying sauces is their
0: auto way to get around
1: up there. So I see the connection. So there got you it. go. <laughs> but oh my God, Chris, so let's, let's, let's go to. So talk okay. to us about what's going on with you. I mean, I know you're working as a space, a space ambassador, the yeah. solar system, but, and you're educating people and you work mm-hmm. with NASA kind of take us through like how you got into this and what exactly you're doing. So there's a lot of stuff you're doing, but it all, Encompasses the solar system, correct?
2: Sure. Yeah. Well, I I started out, I grew up in Northern California and as a space nut and wanted to be an astronaut. So all the posters in my room were all crews of flights and missions and uh, test pilots and that. My dad was a pilot. He had owned a few aviation schools to teach people how to fly and was retired. So he was always taking me around to things like that. So I was really into it. And then went to space camp as a kid and did all that. And then uh, as I hit high school, I got too tall to be an astronaut. I'm a little over six foot four.
1: Wait, there's a height limit? Yeah, yeah. I get Disneyland. To to, to fit in the
2: suits and the capsule and all that, they have a a height and weight requirement. And I I exceeded the height requirement. So uh, dropped it all, was saddened, uh, moved into other things. But it was always an interest and a hobby of mine. And then uh, funny enough, when my kids were in school and STEM education became a big buzzword. I was seeing what they were bringing home for homework assignments, and it was just kind of these dry, boring, photocopied, you know, Xerox sheets of activities to do. And I thought, well, I could put something together more interesting than that. You know, maybe just some of the stuff like I was inspired by going to space camp, watching the early shuttle launches and and all that coverage. So I kind of grabbed some of the stuff I had and just put together almost kind of like your dad visits, you know, what does your dad do for work kind of day at school and offered that up as a program as kind of a one-off. And it just went over like gangbusters. So I had teachers stopping me in the hallway months afterwards, like, you know, the kids are still talking about that. When are you going to come back and do another one? And then they were mentioning it to other teachers and they were emailing me that, you know, you don't know me, but I heard you did a presentation. Could you come and do one for ours? And, and it just slowly kind of started building up from there. So I was just kind of packaging all the things that blew me away that inspired me to want to be an astronaut involved with the space program and kind of package that into a program for the kids in this area. And it really just connected. So it, it actually turned into, I had to figure out how to, to make it work more efficiently. And that's when I got advised to turn it into a nonprofit. So it's a 501c3 it's called space St. Croix because we live right by the St. Croix river here in uh, Hudson, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Wisconsin border. And uh, space because space is awesome. So that was the name for it. And I've been uh, doing that for about six years now.
1: So you're pretty much taking because you're very fluent and know a lot about what goes on in the solar system. You're just kind of educating students and kids on you're helping NASA. And I know you're one of the ambassador the programs managed by JPL based out here in L.A. So you're they're yeah. really they're really supporting and backing you to help educate and give you the resources to give to these teachers. So these kids are more educated about what's going on.
2: In right. The universe, and, right. And yeah. NASA's got that mission, too, because when I set up the nonprofit for Hudson Schools, Then I was getting, it kept expanding, and then I was getting requests from uh, people in Minnesota and different organizations, could I come out and do that? And I'm like, oh, how do I do that? Because I kind of set up the nonprofit just to be for Hudson, Wisconsin, for this region. So then I found out about the NASA Solar System Ambassador Program, where they, you apply and do an interview, and if you get accepted into that program, they give you all these great online facilitations and trainings, and you get to speak, hear from the engineers that are building the spacecraft, what missions are upcoming. And they provide you all the resources. They'll send you out, you know, the handouts and the materials and the stuff for PowerPoints and whatever you're presenting. And so Science Museum of Minnesota and the Bell Museum and libraries and schools, you know, in Minnesota and around the Twin Cities metro area, then I started doing things for NASA through the Solar System Ambassador Program. So yeah, between my nonprofit and the work with NASA, that's kind of covering me for wherever I am in the in the uh, area for presenting.
1: And regardless of where you are in the solar system, yes. you're covered.
2: <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
1: Are you like, what, so, what, so you work with NASA, like, are you allowed to talk about some of this? I mean, it's a podcast, so I know NASA right. is very tight on some of the stuff that they could talk about. But what, can you give us some specifics of what's going on with NASA and what you're doing with them?
2: Sure. Yeah, I can't speak, you know, re- representing NASA on anything. So it would just be, you know, my work as an educator with them and the information that I share coming from that viewpoint on it. But like the one we have coming up that's big for next month is the uh, the Mars Perseverance rover that'll be landing on Mars, uh, February 18th. So just coming up here next month, less than 30 days. So that's been a big one It launched over the summer and we did programs, uh, celebrating the launch and what the mission was going to be about. Now we're coming up on the landing and some, uh, presentations, uh, getting kind of kids ready for what the Rover's going to do and how it's going to land uh, and all that. So that's a big one coming up. One of their flagship programs. Wait, can
1: we talk about what it is going to do and when it lands?
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, a uh, Anybody familiar with the Curiosity rover, this rover looks very similar. It's the same kind of build.
1: Kind like, of so. like the little dune buggy Jeep? No, I'm on the wrong.
2: It looks river. like a small car. Yeah, it's, it's uh, about two tons. It's got six wheels on it, so it looks like a small car. And it's if you looked at it from about 100 yards away, it's identical looking to the Curiosity rover that's there right now. But if you got up close, it's just the same body design because that worked really well. And to cut down costs, they're like, we're just going to use that same kind of chassis and uh, that setup. And then all the science on it is different than the Curiosity rover. So the Curiosity rover is still driving around Mars. That's still working. That landed around 2012. And now Perseverance is going to land, as I said, next month. And that has different science instruments in it. So one of the the main differences is it has what's called a caching system. So it's actually going to drive around. And when the people controlling the rover see something that they think is a good candidate for a sample, they actually have a, kind of looks like the size of a piece of uh, sidewalk chalk. If you remember that, you know, it's kind of thick tube, a piece of sidewalk chalk. That's going to be roughly the size of the samples it can take. So it can take rock and soil, put it in that cache tube, leave it uh, kind of packaged up for later mission, a sample return mission to go around and pick up those samples and bring them back to earth. So that's one main difference it's going to be able to do. It's going to, it has a ground penetrating radar. So it'll be able to see underneath the ground, you know, the structures of things it's driving over. I
1: want one of those in LA.
2: (laughs) For finding potholes and interesting things. Right? Of course. So uh, that, the other one, the kids are really excited about. It's got a demonstration element to it. It's got a helicopter on board. So it's going to be depositing this helicopter on the surface and it's going to Kind of prove the concept that a helicopter can work in the thin atmosphere of Mars. And so like, it's going to do so little. How,
1: how big is a helicopter? I mean, is this?
2: Uh, the helicopter would be kind of, I'm approximating, but it'd be kind of the size of a small table. It's got two carbon fiber blades that counter rotate.
1: Like an oversized it's... drone, like a drone.
2: Yeah, exactly. And okay. it's very, li- very lightweight. And the blades counter rotate and they do about 10,000 rotations per minute. Because the atmosphere for Mars is about 100 times thinner than the atmosphere here on Earth.
1: So it's a gravity thing. And now I'm going to sound like a third grader on the science side. So because I was going to say they're so advanced with NASA and JPL. I was going to ask you why they're not sending drones up there versus big, heavy equipment. But I know they kind of need both technologies to do the job up there. But is it is is it because it's a gravity up there or zero gravity up there? Why they're not putting more drones or mini helicopters up there?
2: No, and actually the, the drones are kind of coming online now. So it was uh, a lot of the engineering is to keep it light. You know, you're always in a battle with the weight because uh, it's so difficult to send things, you know, that far out. And so weight is always an issue. Can we make it light enough, yeah, strong enough to survive? And then the power source for it. But the the drones are coming online. This one is going to prove the concept that this will work on Mars, which will allow them to do future larger vehicles. And then there's another mission approved for Titan, uh, Saturn's moon Titan. There's going to be a kind of a quadcopter style drone that's going to fly around Titan. It's going to land, can take off and go explore another area. And uh, so they're, they're building that mission right now.
1: When is that going to go up?
2: I would have to look at the timeline, the years. I know that's for the later 2020s, I believe. Without looking at it, I want to say 2026, 20, 2028, 20, something like that. But I'd have to pull it up again. But that that mission's been approved, so they are developing
0: it. This is an exciting time for space travel, for space uh, exploration, because, I mean, we had the, uh, what I would call the death of the space shuttle program, and we had kind of a lull there. And now the uh, public-private partnerships between Elon Musk and, uh, and other companies mm-hmm. are making it very exciting now for people to watch the stars and and making it fun again. This is is. like like it would be during the 60s, I imagine.
2: Well, yeah. And and I think that's for from my end, that's what really excites the kids because the robotic missions are great. But I think they get much more interested when there's astronauts involved, you know, when there's people they can talk to and hear what it looks like and what it feels like and watch them eating food in space and all that. That really connects to the kids. Yeah, to your point with, the Demo-1, Demo-2, Crew-1 up there now. Those SpaceX missions were really exciting for the kids to see. And you've got the uh, uh, the Boeing Starliner coming online. They're doing another test flight later this year. Uh, Virgin Galactic, you know, just launched from a 747. They launched a rocket to, to test their concept a lot, you know, uh, sending small sats up, cube sats up. So, uh, yeah, Blue Origin, you know, Jeff Bezos' company. They're looking like uh, latest I read was that their last test flight was very successful, and they're saying uh, by April, they might be flying, you know, passengers. So that'll be huge. You know, and then when you can start talking about interviewing passengers that are going up and getting that that experience. Do
1: you do you think so? Like a very good friend of mine, actually, she was on our podcast last night, Joe Allison Dollar. Yeah of okay. ITV Alliance. She is on the space board. I'm going to screw this up for her. She'll have to correct us later. I don't know if her, it's one of Elon Musk's work. But she's on the space committee space board here in LA okay. and everything. And, you know, the whole big thing is space travel because we went to an event pre-COVID with the whole Mars. know, because they're trying to do this huge projection of what it looks like to live on Mars, right? The mm-hmm. future, future. And do you, I mean, what, I mean, let me be honest. I mean, how do you feel about that? Do you really believe... Like that is where, I mean, I know this, it's so advanced and there is no way anybody could say there's no other. I don't believe we're the only human life form. I mean, it's such a right. vast universe of there's nonstop. It's ongoing. It's infinite. Right. That there's gotta be, like, it could be other planets, other species we could have another earth human people up there you nobody knows what's going on up there right. so what are your thoughts on this of like like how far out do you really think they could go because i know nobody's really gone to the depths of really going further than what they're documenting and now they're talking about maybe if it's sustainable living i mean do you really think that's possible and it's realistic in the next like 20 25 years or do you think a lot of it's just more these visionaries talking about another life off the planet because we have more advanced technologies?
2: I think it, it can happen. It's not a cop-out answer, but it's just that it comes down to, is business and investment you know, going to get behind it? And the way I talk to some people about it is if you think back to early aviation, when aviation was just getting going, and the cost for airports and for planes and for fuel and for mechanics, and there was so much cost to the infrastructure. And people are like, this is just never going to go. It's like a hobby. It's not going to be able to be a real thing, a part of commerce and a part of everyday life. It was just too expensive. So what happened? The, the federal government stepped in and they purchased uh, mail delivery routes for airplanes to deliver the mail. And that was a lifeline that kept that allowed the infrastructure to kind of build up around it. So better airports, better mechanics, better planes, better service, all the adaptations, you know, radar, concrete runways, you know, building... So now, you know we're to where we are today. We can't picture a time when we didn't have airplanes, or what that would be like if we didn't have. Just for commerce and shipping and packages and people and and airports are, are a part of everybody's life all around the world, and they're not going away. And they've gotten the price down, and it works as a model. So I think it's very comparable to space to either. Space stations and low Earth orbit space tourism is going to be very expensive to begin with. Obviously, if you set up a moon base, that's going to be super expensive to maintain and keep up. But I think if you get the buy in from business and investments and things, because as we've all talked about, you know, the resources you can find in asteroids, all the precious metals that are in asteroids, but it is, it's expensive to build an infrastructure to kind of grab one, to mine it, you know, to get those materials and bring them back to Earth. But I think uh, power, resources it's all there it needs to get scaled up it needs to get perfected but I think it's very comparable to something like the development of the airplane we have rockets yeah. now and they're very expensive the cost is coming down now because people like we talked about Elon Musk has figured out how to reuse rocket boosters and land them safely and reuse them again which is really bringing the cost down now you're going to have these tourism companies that are going to really make the access to space a lot easier and that's going to bring you know the cost down the more successful flights they regularly do
1: I mean, it, I mean, life's got to be sustainable because we have a lot of, you know, a lot of crews, a dragon crew went up a while ago. They're up there for days, months, years at a time and everything. Cool. But so I think space tourism is going to be interesting because I think we're so advanced technology, we could do it. But the expense of what I've seen on yeah. some of this stuff is like millions of dollars just to go up and come down within 12 hours, 24 cool. hours. So they're not living up there. It's like if I just want to fly to Italy and back round trip, get off get some coffee, get back and come back. I mean, it's it's phenomenal what you see. I mean, the fact you could see the earth and be up there with all of that is amazing, but it is so expensive just to literally go for a trip around the world.
2: Well, right. And again, sticking with my aviation thing for a second, the only people that could afford air travel were government officials and movie stars. Those are the only people that could afford to fly uh, air travel. And so that was because it was that. So it's almost like the Concorde. I think we could talk about, you know, maybe it's closer to, to the timeline for yeah. everybody where the Concorde was very expensive, kind of elitist. It was the rock stars. It was the jet set and things like that. But basic air travel, you know, anybody can access air travel. But at the, at the beginning, it was only super well to do people or connected people could even consider air travel it just wasn't open at all to the masses
1: but what about like i mean look how much these astronauts have to train for what is it, a year or so health mental mostly i mean you're, you you talk about the force be on those ships. i mean i know there's a right. space where they pass out you're in like g gravity zero gravity i mean the toll in that you just can't say hey here's a check for 2 million i need to go for a ride i mean physically you have to be able to handle all of that
2: right Right. And, and depending on who you're flying with, that's the Virgin Galactic, you know, model that you're going to go up in a, in a plane. The mothership drops the smaller plane and you kind of do your short amount of time feeling weightlessness and come back down to glide for a landing. So that's a pretty gentle profile for the G forces you mentioned in that. So there is a little bit of the health waiver, you know, that. But pretty much I think that is kind of akin to almost like what you'd have to do if you're at a major theme park for a ride. You know, same thing where you have the warning signs. If you have any health conditions, you probably shouldn't do this. If you're, you know, beyond this height or weight, you probably shouldn't do this, uh, that kind of thing. I think it's very close, you know, to that. So that's that's another leap where you're not going to need all that training because you're not expected to fly the craft. You're not going to be doing research up there. You don't need to be trained to handle different procedures like all the astronauts, you know, staying on the space station. They need to be cross-trained as a dentist and a medic and a repairman, and to fix the toilet, and all the other things, because they're it. You can't call for a repairman. But people that are doing tourism flights, they don't need that level of training. They just need to be able to, again, be of of proper health and some basic training. If they have to do an emergency egress or things like that, or how to respond in certain situations, uh, some basic training. But that would be pretty quick to go from you're signing up to to you'd be able to fly up.
0: Christopher, as, as an educator that goes into the classroom, what are the kids really interested in? I mean, when you, you teach different grades all the way from K to 12, right? What, what are some of the things the kids really get into?
2: The younger kids, as I talked about, they, they get really into the, the crewed flights coming back, which has been great because you mentioned that kind of lull after the space shuttle program. So that was a little bit a bit hard to pitch some of the programs because you could do the robotic exploration of the solar system. And they kind of get that, but, but the astronauts coming back has been great. So they, they love hearing about the crewed missions for that. As I go up into the, the high school level, they get into some of the things we've already talked about. They get into the drones and the virtual reality training. I talk about the different jobs at NASA. And some kids think it's just an astronaut or it's just a rocket scientist. I said, no, you know, they need nutritionists to figure out their diet, how they're going to be able to make it through these longer trips to Mars and the moon. They need people to code and program these VR environments because they want to try it out in VR before they actually build the hardware that costs so many tens of millions of dollars. You know, you're into coding games and apps, you know, NASA needs you because they want. So that gets the kids in the back kind of lit up like, oh, I didn't know they did all that. And then I'll show them the videos of that where they're training astronauts, you know, how to use the remote arm or how they're going to open hatches on a hypothetical spacecraft or things making sense or where they need to be or the right size and that. So uh, it kind of changes depending on the grades, either some of the kind of computer encoding, gene sequencing, we do some stuff on, you know, that's the older grades. The younger grades, it's more what you might guess they're into learning about the solar system, the history of space flight. We did a lot of programs celebrating, you know, like the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11. We had a couple summers back, so that was really big on learning about how we did the Apollo program and, and that. So a little bit of history, a little bit of current a little bit of some of the different technology things that are coming up.
1: You guys go through a lot of science and math because I mean NASA space is all based on science and math. I just saw um, it's so funny because the other night I watched Hidden Figures again, for like the fifth time. Oh, I sure. I love that movie. I mean, I see it's so great. many, and it's because it's I mean, it's a true story too. So, yeah. I mean, you really get the idea of science and math and what's going on and how it works. But okay, he's reaching for some folks,
2: Katherine Johnson. Ah.
1: Nice, Aww. Katherine Johnson. It just, I, it's just, it was such a great, motivating show. I mean, obviously for girls who are growing up who want to get into space, from the engineering, the math, the science, you know. But we see so many movies, you know, space stuff. Like there's one. Crazy one like on Amazon that I watched this series of Expanse. You just see all yes. this stuff. Okay, you see, I love I Expanse. Love okay, I wasn't going to say that publicly to anybody. You it, said
2: Amazon, and I'm like, oh, is she going to talk about Expanse? Yes. I love Expanse.
1: Okay, yeah. because so, so Hidden Figures is great because I mean, it's obviously about, and then my little sister's a teacher, math, science. Okay. Wait, yeah, I look at Joe. <laughs> Joe, math and science, right? She's a math and science, and she loves this stuff. And I love Hidden Figures because I mean, I get that. But yeah. oh my God, expanse is the bomb. It's on season six. I binged everything. And it's 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 has of everything I've seen, there's that one with Matt Damon living on Mars, you mars, know. Mars, yeah, mars right? and then you have the one with George Clooney, who's up in space for five hours talking to nobody but you know, stars and gravity. gravity. Yeah. But there's all of these that you see. And then I just saw the one with George Clooney the other day, the new one.
2: Oh, Midnight Sky.
1: Yeah, and I but yeah. I feel like of all of this, the most realistic. Space one that you can say, OK, I could see how that would work in the future down the road would be Expanse. Because Expanse yep. really humanizes the living in space, the belters, the communities up there, how they live, the gravity and then being on the planet. And actually, Mars is like our version of the U.S. badass military Navy SEAL team. OK, Jill's like, I have no idea what you guys are talking about. But I feel like of all the space movies out there. A little bit of Star Trek. We'll get to that in a second, Joe. Yeah. I feel like Expanse is the most realistic space show that you could actually get into because you know how realistic that is versus Doomsday, you know, and all these others. Well,
2: shows. It, and that ties into your previous question for me on our, would we be able to do this and how long would it take? What would it cost? Because the Expanse kind of follows that thread through yeah. saying it's a couple hundred years in the future, but that's all the stuff I was talking about where that is realistic and if you had colonies spreading out you would be going out to saturn to grab ice because then you can haul that back and make that drinking water and rocket fuel because rocket fuel's liquid hydrogen liquid oxygen you know out of h2o so you can make drinking water you can make air to breathe out of it you can make rocket fuel out of it so ice is is the most valuable thing yeah but they but they, they the
1: make Earth. it seem like hey got to hit up to how it helps the moon and back because there's colonies up there and it's like going to Nordstrom's for us. I mean, it's so advanced, but it's so real. Like Joe, you have to get on Amazon prime and watch expanse. (laughs) I mean, you know, from the drones, the technology to, like you said, the resources and all the billions of planets and colonies up there in space that nobody even knows right now, because there's so much up there to explore and the resources. I mean, it is actually an amazing, I mean, it's a show and it's on Amazon. I get it, but it's probably so educational to what an extent of the resources that are still realistic, not wacky, like some of the other movies that we've seen.
2: Right. Well, and and it dovetails to, to me with Star Trek. A Star Trek, I, I like because it has that optimistic view of, you know, we're going to go meet people, we're going to negotiate, we're going to figure things out, we're going to find good and bad, but we'll do what we do. And, and it's, it's uh, to explore and to keep pushing out there, which is great. And then The Expanse, I love because it touches more on that, a potential future for us, but how it might play out. But like you're saying, it tries to get the science as right as you can get for a show. Yeah. It bends things to make it work for TV, but it's trying to be pretty, yeah. to your point, you know, people aren't winking out and, and transporting and appearing somewhere else because they're having to fly <laughs> there and they have to take the drugs to kind of prevent them from passing out because they're doing a high G burn. It's all that. It's as as
1: realistic as you could get. It's like going from the Jetsons, the cartoon and the flying saucers above the ground to like this. I mean, we've evolved in technology. We've evolved in space exploration, but some of these movies are going. I just feel like that just, it definitely covers such realistic aspects of what it's like and what we need to do to get up there to be sustainable.
0: And I think uh, what we're missing here is National Geographic Channel had a uh, (laughs) second series of Mars. And I'm going to say, you know, you talk about realism. It shows all the ugliness that is going to go on with the pioneers who go to Mars and other planets. They're going to be the first ones up there. And it isn't going to be easy at all. Is it documentary or is it like kind of like a... A mockumentary. Uh, would, would we say mockumentary? It's not for comedy, but it's, it's like this. Is no, a- it's kind
2: of half and half. They actually talk to people like Elon Musk about, you know, wh- how would it go and what are you working on? And then the other half is like a dramatic show with actors. But they're taking you through you know Joe's point, like what this would be like if you really just got a, a tenuous foothold and had a little base with a few astronauts. And then in the second season, it expanded to where they're trying to expand the base. More people come out. But then you get some people that have different priorities. They have like a drilling company pretty much to drill for water and to help, you know, expand the power. To, and that's their whole priority. They're like, they don't care about the science. They don't care about what the scientists are doing. They're like, we're here to do a job. And we're getting paid to do this job. And we got to. So it's almost they I think it's a good metaphor for on, on like Earth. It's almost on Earth like the oil derrick. You know, out in the ocean, doesn't care at all what Greenpeace or the other ecologists are doing You know, over here. They're like, hey, we're getting paid. To, we got to finish drilling this rig and get it set up. So it's kind of that metaphor for what's happening on earth and what the conflict would be with, with people huh. uh, setting up. So it's a different angle on it, but it is very interesting because you could see how it could play out that way where there could be accidents and conflicts because you have groups that are kind of on their mission and they really don't care so much about what the other groups worried
0: about. yeah and they're wondering who has the rights to the planet
2: yeah it's like yeah the wild west you know in kind of a way exactly. where it's it's uh you can't do that and the guy's like what do you mean i can't do that like who are you gonna tell who are you gonna get you know it's us yeah and stuff like that so kind of like you might like that like in the expanse or it kind of makes you think about yeah, maybe it would go down like that. How would we resolve that? How would we figure yeah, that Yeah, but
1: out? nobody could actually think that there's not danger. I mean, one, like you said, all the G4s, all the issues, air. You, I mean, you're out there fixing something and your line snaps. And I mean, it's bad, but, you know, when you see these moves, these guys, little guys floating off in the space, I mean, there's so much that can happen. It's not like there's a really quick recovery up there like there is down here, like with accidents and stuff. So, I mean, it's not the safest place i mean when you think it through and i just think like with this i haven't seen mars yet but i have to watch it now yep. but i feel like if it's kind of dark we're like hey there's some really bad problems of first people up there it's going to be tough you can't expect to be anything but tough because there's nowhere to go there is nothing to do i mean you have to just deal with what's there so i it is definitely not i don't know if that's slowed down The space tourism, like you said, are futuristic of sustainable life because there's so many dangers that nobody's even aware of, of how to handle it. But until you cover all that, I I don't know if you'd want to just go up there and hang out for a day or two.
2: Well, and that's why one of my favorite astronauts, I don't know if you two know the story, but uh, Alan Bean, who walked on the moon in Apollo 12, and he flew on Skylab and did a long duration mission on Skylab. He retired before the shuttle program got going, and and he... uh, He's actually trained as a fine artist, did a lot of great paintings of his experiences up on the moon. But he talked about an interview, because I think we all have the image of the super brave military trained test pilot and became an astronaut. And they're not phased by anything. And he said in interviews, he's like, I was probably the the scaredest astronaut of my peers. Because he's like, he would look at the window and to your point, know that on the other side of that window is the vacuum of space. And that was going to kill him. And that's all that was between him and not being alive anymore. And so he thought about that stuff a lot. He shared that, which I thought was very honest of him and, and great to do because I helped, I think it helped dispel that image of none of these guys are worried about anything and they chewed on nails for breakfast and they went up and did it and it was fine, you know, big deal, let's go again. And that whole thing. And people like Alan Bean are like, no, I, I knew what was going on and I knew what the, the risks were and, and I was going to do it, but I thought about it and I worried about it. And that's so, yeah, I, I think people need to hear that. And to your point, I think that that needs to, to be clear in the, which I'm sure it will be in the training for all these tourism flights and that, that you're you're taking a risk. We're making it as safe as possible. We've got all the redundant systems. We've tested and tested and tested it, but there could be something that could go wrong. And, and, uh, and you need to be aware of that, that. If you're not up for that, you shouldn't consider doing this. And that's like my wife made me sign paperwork. I've got two kids and two dogs and she's like, you are never volunteering for any educator in space, or if they offer you one of these through a drawing or whatever. I'm like, you got it. I'll stop up just teaching the kids, and they will do my programs. I won't, because uh, all the kids ask me that after I'm done with the program. They're like, are you going to go to space, Mister Mick? I'm like, no. I I, I signed. Uh, I signed paperwork. I have a waiver. Yeah.
1: I, I just think it's amazing how advanced everything is. I, okay, I'm going to ask you the stupid question. I know Joe knows this is coming. Where? So honestly, you've dealt with space, you grew up with this, you know what's going on, what's ahead of us, missions and all this stuff. There is so much out there. Do you, okay, so I have two questions. One's a serious okay. one. Do you really think that, I mean, there, there's no way we could say there's so many planets, stars, parallel universes. There's no way to ever know what's really out there. Do you think NASA really knows there's a lot more out there that could be sustainable? it may be, not to sound corny, 50 other planets or galaxies or areas that we aren't aware of that they just don't want us to know? Or do you think it really is limited on the knowledge of what's going on up there?
2: I think it's limited on the knowledge of what's going on up there. I think NASA is very good about posting, you know, one of their their deep space telescopes, you know, TESS, is cataloging exoplanets. and We're finding new exoplanets every day and candidates for ones that we have to confirm with more data. But we're finding, and they lay out the, it's the size of an Earth, it's the size of a Jupiter. You know, they're giving us the comparison. They're saying it's this far out from its star. So some of those exoplanets we've discovered are in that, what they call the Goldilocks zone. You know, it's not too hot, not too cold relative to their star. And so right there, that tells you if it's a Earth roughly sized planet and it's in that Goldilocks zone, to your point, you know, if, if the right chemicals and things are there, there could be life. there, And we might even still find life Microbial life and things in our solar system. You got these moons like Enceladus and things like that, where there's uh, tidal heating happening with the tug of war between the planet and the moon, and it heats the inside of the moon. And there's these thermal vents, and you have ice being ejected out into the thin atmosphere. So you'd have to drill down through the ice. We'd have to figure out other technologies, but there could be life. You know, there's life around thermal vents here on the Earth. And there could be life around thermal vents that are happening, you know, on some of these these Jovian moons that we're, we've seen. Well, they said
1: on. they said that Saturn, the ring around Saturn, over so many years is starting to disintegrate mm-hmm. and and disappear from all the gases and or I don't know, science geeky atoms, whatever's up there. I just know and everything. But if, when you think about it, it's it's amazing to me between asteroids and like you said, all these thermal communities and ice chunks, everything going on up there. It's really, when you think about it, how small and insignificant we are, but what's out there. We are safe in a bubble because think about all the moons and all the stuff floating around and the gases and all this stuff. That's like like a bad Hollywood movie of mass destruction when the asteroid hits. But that stuff can happen. But the way science and math works and the layers of gravity and how the world is, we are protected from all of that.
2: In a way, yeah. If it's big enough, it's not going to, you know, keep us in our little protective bubble. So we, we, we mow through, you know, tons of debris every day that people sometimes see as a shooting star, or it's not even big enough to register as a shooting star. And you find meteorites. Like I've got, you know, your samples. that land. Wait, Let's
1: see that again. Okay. Nice.
2: You can see that in there. Got a little iron, iron meteorite.
1: That's like a little chunk of silver.
2: Yeah. It's it, a magnet. will pick it up. If you got it. And, uh, that's a remnant from a, a meteorite, but, so that's hitting the atmosphere all the time. But if it's a large enough object, it's not going to burn up in the atmosphere. And that's when you get like the dinosaur events asteroid, like we talk about. That uh, So if it's big enough, if it's a couple miles across, it's going to hit the atmosphere and it's not going to uh, air burst and it's not going to burn up in the atmosphere. It'll make it down to the ground and do a huge impact.
1: Yeah. Okay, so I have, this, I have this stupid question before you wrap up. Do you okay. honestly, given your history, do you believe there is other intelligent life forms up there and there's other life out there beyond the solar system.
2: I would say life for sure. The intelligent thing is just the tricky because you get the time periods because of the age. Was there a, a an advanced civilization more advanced than ours, but it ran its course and it's died out. And that was a billion years ago. If you get where I'm going with it, you know the, the time spans are just so, so to say like right now, there's somebody doing what we're doing five light years away somewhere or way advanced than we are. I just don't know on the, the time spans for how long a civilization lasts. And when you attain a certain level of technology and, and what's the, you know, is there a rise and decline and elimination? Do you keep going? What time scales do those happen on? I think we'll find life. And like I said, I think we may even find evidence of current or past life in our solar system, still between the, the moons and the planets we have to discover when you open it up to the whole universe like you're talking about, I'm certain there is life out there. I just don't know what level it's at, if it would be primitive, if it would be life in the ocean of that world that we would find. And maybe it hasn't moved on the land yet. I don't know You know what level it would be at, but uh, I'm almost positive there would have to be life happening.
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree. Jim, what do you think?
0: Yes, honestly, I, I do right now. And that, the only thing is, is that's stopping us from really discovering it is The fact that we cannot travel fast in space, and that's the only thing that's holding us back. I mean, we're not going to have warp speed like they do in Star Trek. I mean, that's one thing I think that is impossible right now to even figure out, even though the Elk, if I'm saying it right, El Cubre Drive could get up to like a speed of light. It's still, I mean, when you're talking about a, a galaxy that's five you know light years away, that's five years you're going to be out there. And then yep. you're going to have to deal with the whole thing with the whole Einstein curve when you're talking about time. I mean, do you come back to an Earth that is, you know, maybe you've been gone 10 years and the Earth has actually been there for two? I mean, it, it's really the physics out there are mind blowing right now.
1: But there is life out there. Yes. Just want to make sure we're on agreement that I'm not the only one who thinks that. Okay. I am so awesome to have you on here, Chris. Of all of the sci-fi, all of the stuff going on out there, what is your favorite space sci-fi movie of all time?
2: Oh, uh, 2001 A Space, Odyssey. That, that kind of blew me out the back wall the, the first time I saw it. And it's just grown. And I actually got to meet some of the filmmakers that worked on that. Frederick Ordway was a technical consultant, and I got to meet him in Chicago. At a 70 millimeter screening of it Jan Harlan I got to meet Kubrick's brother-in-law who uh, worked on the art. he still works with the estate and the archives and that so uh, yeah that's that movie to me kind of touches on all the things we're talking about how does it happen is there life out there and how would they get around and transport and the monoliths? And, and that just that opened up so many doors in my mind on potential for yeah I could really go the way you know they're laying out in this movie and then just the aspiration I think for for humans because at, at that time, that was in the 60s projecting where we might be by the year 2001 and at the rates of what we were spending on Apollo and all that it was very easy to see that yeah we might be making our first mission to Jupiter space by then so that was very realistic you know in the design and that this is humanity's first mission out to Jupiter it was a big deal and but the ship looked right the astronauts looked right and all the technology looked right kind of like we were talking with uh, the expanse and things so that that's still I watched it probably couple months ago and I still listed in Florida that, that was made you know 50 years ago because I'm still impressed by <laughs> shots in that and there was no CGI or, or any uh, graphics going on it was all just you know in the camera so it's pretty amazing.
1: Joe what was your favorite one?
0: My favorite space movie?
1: Anything it could be any movie any show what's your favorite?
0: Star Trek 2 The Wrath of Khan and I just liked it for the adventure and the you know just the action. Of it. I mean, that was to me, that was, you know, if I really wanted to go deep down of what was really doing it for me at the time, honestly, it was Mars. Cause I said that is exactly what's going to happen.
1: Okay. I like Mars. My favorite is going to be so stupid with you guys, but like, honestly, I am so obsessed. Okay. Do not laugh. No judgment on my podcast with Guardians of the Galaxy. Okay. Yeah. I am so obsessed because that and the expanse. I just, I'm obsessed with both of those. I keep, I think it's also, I love, the cast in Guardians of the Galaxy, the music—it's just everything that is so life out there beyond just who we are—is what I love right now. It's just absolutely crazy.
2: Well, right? and that's—it's—it's it's yeah. about what what you have fun with and enjoy, and that's it. And that's why I love that's that A and in, in Steam that I stress is you know the arts for the, all the movies we're talking about. I tell that's the kids. I'm like it's an access point. It gets you talking about. And you got to be talented to create these stories and to get people wanting to sit down and watch Mm -hmm. it and that so any of those that get people thinking about aliens on the universe or space travel or what's another way to do it i think all that stuff's great because a lot of the kids sometimes think like i'm going to be looking down my nose and all those are all dumb and like no sci-fi is awesome like and that really keeps the conversation
1: yeah, I just think it gets tainted when you get to these crazies on Area 54 that are out there, you know, with these big signs. Beam me up. And I, it's, it's funny, I laugh my ass off because I love that shit. But I feel like let's focus on science and math and what's really going on up there. You know, not all that. Right. I, I still have questions about Area. I still have questions about it. But, but I think there's so much that we do have that the government has covered up, that NASA does keep quiet because it's an unknown. But, you know, I just feel like I don't know if there's any, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. At the very bottom level, scraping the barrel, is there any truth to them covering any of that stuff up? Or has it just all been made up just to create spin and just chaos because it's a huge desert area with big wire gates around them?
2: Well, I know a little bit of the, the straight up history of that area. I mean, being an aviation dot, like I talked about my dad being a pilot. I know, you know, Kelly Johnson, you know, Skunk Works facility was out there for building planes like you know the U-2 and the SR-71 and that so those were ultra cold war spy planes that they didn't want anybody to know about especially Russian spies and that so they picked an area where nobody was going to watch you know when them doing testing and that so it was legitimate remote space to if you want to build a spy plane and don't want to advertise your new spy plane where are you going to go test it so Area 51 is a really good spot where well,
1: I said 54 did not I? Studio <laughs> 54. I think you're making that,
2: that segue there.
1: There's there's disco balls out in the desert. It doesn't yeah. fool anybody. They're not so, flying saucers. It's a discothèque.
2: Yeah. So I think there's some legitimate history to the secretive nature of you know the CIA and the military and and Kelly Johnson building cutting edge airplanes for them out there. They didn't want anybody to know about. And then I think it just kind of crosses over into the urban legend myth stuff because. If you're keeping yeah. something a secret, people are gonna make up their story of why you're you're keeping it a secret. But I think it had a very legitimate origin.
1: Well, they also watch too much TV. You know, and they'll get independence day, look at some of this stuff that we all know, you know, aliens and everything. It's funny. Yeah. What I love about NASA is I have an amazing, amazing video I'll send you later today. NASA had to get them rights to it. You know how like NASA, there's so much fiber carbon there's so much materials and stuff that they use obviously to come back and down no bad day is a big snowboard company and they did a monster campaign on this video and one of the snowboards badass snowboard it has it's black and it has nasa along the underneath of it and it's a snowboard that um they use some of the. and is obviously not a chemistry major joe (laughs) i went to asu not a chem major it was a carbon fiber or something that they use, that they got a hold of, so they made this amazing snowboard. But it's a NASA snowboard. It's a snowboard, and they did the best video. But they obviously had to have NASA's approval because they had NASA's logo and stuff on it. Right. It is. It's my favorite video, and like it's my favorite thing. And I love that there's a NASA snowboard. I will email it to both of you guys when we get oh, off. You guys are going to love it. it. It's definitely. Sure. It's definitely science. To this okay. so chris it's so yes. awesome having you on right now quick question for anybody who like who is a teacher or uh, in school education are you doing these programs anywhere like arizona california new york florida or is it only in your area that you're helping these schools and teachers
2: i'm like a my life is like a big venn diagram so like i said at the beginning uh space st croix is kind of just for hudson so anybody in okay. hudson that needs a program i do boy scouts girl scouts united way libraries all that NASA Solar System Ambassador is for all the regions outside of that, that I do that. And with COVID-19, I've been having people request me to present. So I've done things in England for uh, science people podcasting and and, uh, Zooms and things like that. So I did one a couple months ago and I got one coming up again. So... Yeah, that I'm totally happy to speak on when people ask me about, you know, when you speak to our kids about this topic or telescopes or whatever, uh, very happy to do that because that's been what the COVID nineteen situation's kind of put yeah. us all in is uh, communicating that way and doing interviews and sharing information and whatever groups, you know, are excited to hear about that. I'm very happy to talk about
1: it. How can everybody out there find you? How I mean, where can they find you for information to connect with you
2: if you type in space st croix you'll probably get led to my stuff and fall over it because that's my handle for instagram and, and my website and all that so it's space st is our website but if you type in space st croix on instagram or twitter or and it's, it. it's
1: s-t-c-r-o-i-x not right right
2: yeah okay version yep
1: okay perfect it was so good having you on to talk all things solar and space and what's going on up there
2: oh well, thanks for asking me it's been great
1: it's been so much fun. Thank you so much. This is Sarah Miller, Media Mavens Podcast. Joe Pirates, thank you for another great day on Earth. Yes, <laughs> and, <along> and prosper. <laughs> Chris, we look forward to having you back again soon.
2: I'll look forward to it. Thank you much.
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Media Mavens Podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode or download past episodes, subscribe to the Media Mavens Podcast on your favorite podcast provider, or on the Evergreen Podcast Network. To learn more about the podcast or our guests, log on to www.mediamavenspodcast.com.
2: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.